0: Hello and welcome to London Live. It's Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Thursday, February 21st, 2019. Hope your day is a good one. If you're uh, missing Mike, you can hear him call the London Knights game tonight in Peterborough. The Knights face the Peets. You can hear the game on 980 CFPL starting at 630 with the pregame puck drop will be at 705. The Knights are home on Friday against Hamilton and Sunday afternoon against North Bay. On today's show, we've got lots to get to. We will spend the first hour, or sorry, the first half hour of the show talking about Western and fake homecoming and what the city should do. We talked about this yesterday, but I think we uh, should be talking about it again today. I understand the anger people have in the community. Marriott Holder was quite forthright with the university yesterday. I personally think it's a little more complicated than people may appreciate, so I'm a little bit more lenient on the university. Uh, They have a role to play, obviously, but this is just not a London problem. It's uh, quite widespread. So we'll uh, do that to start. We'll also talk about a new contract for doctors in Ontario. After a years-long battle, that has been finalized. We'll talk about a warning from Health Canada on cold and cough medicine for kids. Next hour, we'll talk about why we could have less lake ice in our future and why that's a bad thing. We'll also talk about the launch of a new training program on sexual violence. Disclosure at Western. We'll talk about stats that show Canadian couples are uh, living apart more than ever before. And we'll talk about the end of the Wingham Police Service. Up first, FOCO. We talked about this yesterday, but what do you do to get this under control? City councils looking for ways to beef up their bylaws. They may need assistance from uh, the province, maybe some guidance uh, on really how they can do that. There's only so much current bylaws can do. London does have a nuisance bylaw, but that has not been really effective in this case. Western's looking what they can do for their code of conduct. All the universities are meeting to see if there's some sort of coordinated effort they can do. Uh, To talk about this, we are joined by Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. FOCO happens in his ward. Thanks for your time today.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Uh, The the Foco Street Party issue is one that has been growing with every year. It seems everything that's tried up until now has not worked. Uh, Who should be taking the lead on this issue? Do you think?
1: Well, I think first of all, I think there's a lot of leads. I think that's not to avoid the question, but I think first of all, uh, Western has to take a large amount of responsibility, largely because a lot of their actions up till now, and I'll be quite frank, have not helped the problem and in some cases have made it worse. For example, trying to change dates and have sort of uh, different dates uh, just didn't work. And in fact, it made the situation worse because it reinforced to students their desire to have a party. And the reason I know that is because I've been on the street uh, on each year after they made the change, and the students have been pretty defiant about that. So the growth has been uh, sort of spurred to a great extent by, uh, by defiance. And I think we've got to get a grip on that. So there's only so many things that a municipality can do at this point of time. But as I indicated yesterday, there are some ultimate steps that, that can be taken that I think people should be aware of. So, uh, steps that were taken at Fanshawe, which is to use the criminal code uh, to actually charge people criminally when they when they are involved in an unlawful assembly. The difficulty with that is it's a tr- sort of a draconian step that gives people criminal records. And I can tell you that's that's pretty serious stuff for a young person. So I think one of the good things I saw yesterday when we were meeting was that there was actually someone from Western University uh, at the meeting to hear from us about how frustrated we are, and that's new. That's not something that's happened since uh, since I've been a counselor. Western has largely worked on its own to come up with solutions, and, and now they appear ready to work with uh, the community and with our admin- our uh, administration to maybe have some solutions that have peace. But I don't think there's a magic bullet for this one, you know, to solve the problem.
0: Has Western underestimated this, do you think? Or have they just hoped the problem would go away? What What do you think's the issue there?
1: I think they've underestimated it. I mean, every year I've, I've been to meetings where I hear about what they're going to do that year about, to solve the POCO problem, you know, to have an alternative concert, offer something as an alternative encourage students through advertising not to go. And I can tell you they've been completely outflanked by the leaders of FOCO. And I'll be frank about that. They've used social media and their planning to just sort of go around that and, in fact, use the steps of the university to say, hey, the university's trying to shut us down. Let's show them when they can't shut us down. So there's just been this uh, back and forth, I think, between Western and its students that, the community has been caught in the middle of. Like, we're sort of the observers of this, this contest that's going on between Western and, and the students. So I think they are now realizing that the London community expects them to do something and that it's not good enough to just say, well, you know, it's on city property, a lot of them are not Western students, so it's not our fault. I think people are definitely saying, look, what are you going to do? Are you? And, and the first step is... They're looking at their code of conduct. In other words, can can they say, look, you're a student at Western, you misbehaved in the City of London, there's going to be consequences to you in terms of your education. And those are the kinds of things that will really hit home, I believe. If you If you show that there's going to be consequences for actions, I think... That's the only way to change behavior.
0: The criminal code uh, idea is an interesting one. Uh, I I don't necessarily disagree. I I heard someone say to me the other day, we'll just charge everyone, fine everyone, all the 20,000, which uh, uh, maybe at first blush sounds like a good idea, but then all of a sudden we have a court system that's trying to process 20,000 people potentially, assuming you can even lay that many charges or fines.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, the logistics of it are going to be incredible. So just think you're a police officer on the street, and you run into a drunken student or, or anyone who you want to charge, first of all, you've got to identify them. So you've got to find out who they are, and believe me, that's not as easy as you think, because a lot of them will just say, I'm not telling you anything. So you've got to identify them. You've got to lay a charge. Um, it's, it's not as easy as you might think, particularly when you have 20,000 people on a street. Imagine, imagine trying to charge... People individually, when they're moving around in a group of 20,000 people, um, they can easily get away and that sort of thing. So it's going to be a challenge, and unfortunately, we're not the only community facing this. I mean, there, people should know this is happening in every university town, that they're having an event like this. And we are, we are not certainly not alone in, in trying to find a solution to this, and it's, it's concerning.
0: I have some sympathy for you know for city hall, for police, uh, for Western, for everyone trying to find a solution to this because it's kind of like trying to, as you mentioned, it's not just us dealing with it, it's almost like trying to you know get a blob and trying to mold it when it keeps squirting between your fingers. It's yeah. there, there's not like there's no magic bullet. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this right now.
1: No, listen. People say all kinds of things to me that they think are are simple solutions. First of all, they say let's you know just charge everybody uh, do that. And I'm just, people have no idea of what manpower and resources would be required to wade into a crowd of 20,000 people and try to charge them. First of all, there'd be a huge, if people have been there at all, they'd know, first of all, that's dangerous. I mean, uh, police officers, um, would be in peril if they tried to do that. This is a, this is a big crowd that has a sort of a life of its own. Um, you know, so that's that's a huge problem. And the other thing people say to me is, well, just stop them from going to that street. Well, again, if you're on in the area, you'll know that, that every house on that street is occupied by students. So it's sort of, they all serve as little bases of operation for the party, and students just stream in through the backyards of those properties um, into this particular street. So every solution, you know, I, I get it, but... Uh, every solution that I've seen has challenges. And so what bothers me is that, you know, all the good work that's done by Western students, and, you know, they do a lot of good work in the community, and they bring a lot to the community, is sort of gets a black eye because of this one day. And that's really too bad, and I wish students would sort of start to think about that aspect of it. You know, what do we want to do? Do we want to have a reasonable party uh, at a location that we all agree on, have as much fun as you want, keep it within certain bounds, and the city might accept that. And then you'd be, you'd be in a good position. Or do you want to continue on, you know, basically disobeying the law, and the people in London are really unhappy with you? And I think that's, that's something I hope students will think about. Uh, will it make a difference? I'm not sure.
0: I hope they do. Uh, I've said it before. A a number of people said it before. I don't think it's hyperbole. If we don't figure something out, someone is going to die. And it shouldn't take someone dying for the students to realize that this shouldn't be happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've already had serious injuries. Look, we've had had incredible injuries. And and let me just leave you with this or or let you know something I saw last year. And this this is how crazy it is. Um, A young woman uh, was injured and was being taken away by an ambulance. And she was in a lot of distress. And the crowd around me was cheering, uh, not cheering for her, sort of cheering the fact that they had partied so hard that someone was seriously hurt. And I turned to them and I said, what is wrong with you? You know, you're cheering because a a young woman is having to go to the hospital and is bleeding? I mean, is that where we are in terms of this? And the guy looked at me, and it sort of snapped him out of his reverie for a second, and he walked away from me. He didn't want to talk anymore because he realized, you know, he was out of control, um, and he wasn't acting like a person with compassion would. So think about, a, you know, a crowd with 20,000 people who are so inebriated they don't know what they're doing. And that's what you're, that's what you're looking at.
0: Uh, Phil, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
1: Great to be with you. Take care.
0: That's Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to continue the focus on the uh, street parties issue that we've been talking about for a couple of days now. And it's one that I am just really interested in because theoretically, it's something that we should be able to solve. Theoretically, it's something you could say, okay, well, if you have all these people in a uh, a area of town. You got 20,000 people along Bruffdale. Just break it up. Send the police in and break it up. And police have done their very best to try and keep the peace, but it's just not that simple. You bring in York Regional Police, as London Police did last year, to assist with this. That's how much it strains their resources. And there is not that silver bullet you would hope there to be on this, because as I've already said if that silver bullet existed, it would have already been fired, so to speak. One of the criticisms in the past uh, that some in the community have had is that uh, Western University uh, was maybe uh, not taking this as seriously as uh, as they should. Whether that is true or not uh, probably lies somewhere in between, maybe not visibly uh, the university is showing uh, they were uh, tackling the issue as much as uh, people would want. But I know from talking to Western officials, this has been on their radar for a while. And even if maybe they weren't as front forward publicly talking about it, I know it has been on their agenda for quite a while. And there's no simple answer to this. Now, though, we're at an interesting place where the universities are gathering together to talk where, th- where you have a, I think, a renewed effort on all sides to come together to find some sort of solution to this. But when you have people coming from New York State to party on Bruffdale, as we heard yesterday, it's a problem. Uh, to talk about this, we are joined by uh, Lynn Logan from Western University. Uh, thanks for your time today.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Devin.
0: The uh, the uh, I don't need to tell you the uh, these unsanctioned uh, parties are certainly a point of interest in this community. Uh, I people have been trying a lot of different ways to see uh, what might work, what might uh, not work. Uh, this is not just a London problem. This is something that happens across the country, even in other countries as well. So. Uh, uh, I guess in some ways, that maybe that's a little comforting to know it's not just us. But I know uh, just to go, maybe go back to uh, last week. Uh, Western I was getting together with some other uh, universities to talk about this. Uh, how was that conversation?
2: Well, it was a, it was a great conversation. Um, there were more than fifty representatives attending from nine Ontario universities, several municipalities, and police forces that came together. Uh, it was day long, really, to discuss the common challenges and what might be the most effective responses to these unsanctioned street gatherings. I think the um, strong attendance certainly clearly demonstrates that the phenomenon of unsanctioned street gatherings isn't unique, certainly to Western or to any one university or community. It's uh, a common challenge for many universities and many communities. And one, unfortunately, I don't think we have a silver bullet response or answer to quite yet.
0: The, the purpose of Friday, though, wasn't to come up with the answer. It's just to start that conversation, though, right?
2: That's correct. And to see what everyone else is doing and see if we can't gain alignment um, and, and help each other learn, right, as to what has worked, what hasn't worked, what others are trying, uh, and really to watch as we try different strategies across the province.
0: With regards uh, to alignment, I, I saw a story about uh, some universities in Ontario looking to maybe try and align homecoming uh, games to maybe as one potential aspect of all this.
2: Yeah, so uh, I think Jenny Massey, our AVP student experience, was on on the weekend and articulated that um, we have tried to choose two dates for homecoming um, in the upcoming year. I don't know if it's for this year but uh, certainly for years moving forward. And that is one of the strategies that university presidents have brought forward to try and and resolve part of this issue.
0: I, I don't know if you have any dates on this, but could that potentially mean homecoming gets moved for Western, whether it's this year or next, or has that been decided yet?
2: Um, well, this it has not been decided. Um, this year's is already um, the same time frame as it was last year. I think it's the uh, following year and the year after that are still in question,
0: okay. Uh, just in terms of uh, you know some of the moving parts. I mean, there's um, universities that are involved. Uh, there's the different you know municipal governments, uh, police forces. It's it's a it's it's not as though it's just on city property or it's just all on university property, and maybe it's easier to handle there. Or it's on private property somewhere else, and maybe it's a little bit easier to handle in that sense. It's it's kind of a, a tricky uh, area to fix. Um, I I, 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 you know, whenever I talk to people about this, uh, people don't really have any ideas. And well, they have ideas, but uh, they don't know if they might work. So it's it's a trick. It's a tough nut to crack.
2: It is, and most of what we're talking about are the unsanctioned, where it's not a university-sanctioned event, so not on university property. In, in, and that's not in all cases, but that's in the majority of cases.
0: Is this problem? And, sorry. That's okay, go ahead. Is this problem growing because I mean you know we saw in, in London we had you know twenty thousand people on Bruffdale, but even some of the numbers from Ottawa and Kingston and other parts of the province you know they had even more so it's I, and I don't remember this being uh, like this like you know ten years ago. I know this has been steadily growing, but it wasn't like this ten years ago and
2: it, it wasn't um, they really didn't exist, I think in the era of uh, social media. What we have now is a growing phenomenon, and it does seem to be growing. Certainly, when we were at Laurier on Friday, they had 25,000 last year, and they are anticipating 30,000 this year. And, you know, I I, I worry a bit that the more we talk about the numbers, the more that we fuel the phenomenon. But uh, I, I don't know how, you know, what strategies we have not to talk about what we're dealing with, so...
0: Yeah, but well it's it is
2: definitely growing.
0: It's growing and it's it's dangerous. I mean, it's not uh students may look at it as a point of pride incorrectly, but it's dangerous. And you know, I was uh talking to Oris Katolik from the city of uh London the other day and uh he he was talking and I don't think it it's, to me it's not hyperbole that someone could die in these situations. Just it's difficult for emergency crews to get around. So, um if students are viewing, you know, 30,000 somewhere else as some sort of uh a point of Pride, it is not that.
2: No, it's not. And, uh, you know, we certainly respect our students' desire to want to have fun. But at the same time, we certainly don't want to um, get to the eventuality that you just talked about. And it is a very deep concern, certainly for all that are involved in the task force and, and for Western most certainly. Is and for, for the entire community.
0: Is there a certain sort of uh, timeline uh, for you on this or, I mean, obviously we, in, in a perfect world, everyone would have you know, a solution and we can try and enact it tomorrow and it's in place for whenever needed. Um, but it's, as we've kind of articulated, it's not so easy. Is there a certain timeline uh, that universities, uh, everyone's working towards, or is it just trying to find the best solution whenever it may be?
2: I think it's trying to find the best solution. I think we recognize how complex this issue is. It's a a culture that we're going to need to try and understand how we shift. And so I don't actually think that it's a short-term journey. I do believe that it's a mid- to longer-term journey to try and and shift this culture. You know, I think we. one of the things that came out of um, the consultation last week was that um, one university, at least, is starting to do research Uh, into the most effective ways to change the behaviors that lead to these street gatherings. Now, whether or not we can actually truly get deep enough to understand, you know, this phenomenon, uh, it's certainly not even provincial. It's North American. And so I think that, uh, you know, we are certainly looking to continue to collaborate with all of those that are undergoing this to see what has worked. And so I think it's going to be all of us trying a number of solutions in different years to understand what actually gains traction and what we can then use to gain a bit of momentum.
0: Are there going to be any future um, uh, meetings with the other universities just to kind of follow up from from Friday and what happens uh, after that?
2: Well, we certainly committed to continuing to uh, dialogue together. Certainly there's a lot of ways electronically you can do that. We did not set a, a specific date into the future, but it would be my guess that this will this will continue. We just did not um, articulate a certain timeline.
0: And is there, like, how much flexibility is there on, on Western's uh, side of things, or I guess any university, in terms of the code of conduct and any changes that possibly could be made there?
2: Well, so I, I did talk last week about um, Western considering uh, and really reviewing our code of conduct. Uh, that's going to take us a little bit of time, and obviously that is something that we want to have some dialogue Uh, with our student executives with, and certainly it requires the approval of our Board of Governors. So, um, you know, we're we're taking a look at that, and we're going to bring some recommendations forward, but we don't have those fully articulated yet. Um, So we are working, trying to, if we're going to communicate anything to students, we are looking in, you know, a a time frame that's going to be happening this summer sometime.
0: Lynn, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
2: Okay, thank you, Devin. Take
0: care. That's Lynn Logan from Western University. We need to pause when come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Earlier this week, an arbitrator awarded Ontario doctors a four-year contract in a ruling that puts no hard cap on the physician services budget. The decision says placing such a restriction on the payments to doctors for publicly insured services would be unfair. But the arbitrator says a working group will be established to look into restricting inappropriate or overused physician services or physician payments. The doctors have been in conflict with the government for several years, including voting down a proposal in 2016 that would have increased... The approximately $12 billion physician services budget by more than $1 billion, but it would have also included $200 million in fee cuts. In the decision, the arbitrator has also awarded fee increases of an average of 1% over the four years of the contract to March 31st, 2021. To talk about this, we are joined by Dr. Nadia Elam, the president of the Ontario Medical Association. Thanks for your time today.
3: Devin, thank you for having me on the show.
0: It's uh, been uh, quite a long time coming to this point where there has been a contract. Uh, Did it have to be this bumpy, do you think?
3: I don't think it had to be, but unfortunately it was. It's no secret that our relationship with the previous government was fractious at best, but at least... This award, this contract, will allow us to move forward to a better relationship with the new government and, as importantly, bring some stability and predictability back to the healthcare system.
0: Are you happy with the end result?
3: I am. I'm satisfied. And certainly what I'm hearing from other doctors is that they're relieved. I've been moved by the reactions I've seen. Doctors have faced a great deal of uncertainty and sacrifice since 2015 just to do the job they love. This decision brings that chapter to a close. We can all move forward now.
0: What does this uh, mean for uh, care in this province, for people who are uh, maybe following along, a little bit worried at times of what might happen? What's what's the end result now for, for families and people?
3: So for patients, the biggest thing that they can take away for families and communities is that the services that they need, the medically necessary care that they need from their doctors will be fully funded by the government. What it also means is that doctors and government can now work together on fixing the health care system. We know there are problems with the health care system. We've all seen the wait times. We've all seen hallway medicine. This contract will allow us to turn the page and start moving towards the relationship that helps find answers to those problems.
0: How close is this to some of the previous proposals that were put forward by, by doctors?
3: The truth is neither side got everything they wanted. But this contract is fair and it is independent and it's a middle ground that lets us rebuild the relationship the way between doctors and government the way that it needs to be rebuilt
0: the uh, the previous government uh, obviously uh, took quite a hard line on this. Uh, do you think something like this could have been achieved with the previous government, or was it necessary for there to be a change? Just even if you know uh, it's kind of a compromise for both sides, but just for you know uh, a, a different approach uh, to try and get a deal here.
3: What I do know about binding arbitration is that the decision is binding, so it, it's enforced on both uh, the doctors and b- b- on government. It's also a decision that's made by a neutral third party, so it, it's separate from whoever is in power. They make the decisions now. What you bring to the table from each side matters. In this case, like I said, neither side got everything they wanted, but at least the decision is fair to both.
0: Is there anything in the contract that's there that, uh, from from your perspective, was a must-have, just had to be there? Uh, I, I don't know if there was a worry that it wouldn't be, but now that the end result here is, you're glad it's there in terms of moving forward for care for for Ontarians.
3: There's actually three big things that I think are, are part of this contract that's important to doctors. One is that every physician service that a patient needs, the medically necessary care that they need, in other words, is fully funded by the government. So there's no spending cap on medically necessary services, and there are no further cuts. The second thing is that there's a small compensation increase that helps offset the, the business cost of a medical practice. And finally, like I said, this decision lets us rebuild a better relationship with the current government. We know this government has a, an ambitious health transformation agenda. We want to be part of that. We've got answers that we can bring to the table. This contract lets us all move forward.
0: What is the status of, would you say, relationship between doctors and patients and the public? Obviously, the, the, those two sides weren't against each other, but I, don't, I feel as though doctors point. Uh, At least the previous government tried to make doctors like the scapegoat or or the bad guy, so to speak. And so I just wonder, uh, (laughs) did did you feel that from from patients at all or did they kind of understand this is, uh, it it has to do with them, but it didn't have to do with them in, in a way.
3: I actually got the sense that patients felt their doctors were fighting for them and fighting for their care. I can tell you that the one thing that unites every single doctor in Ontario is their love of medicine, and that comes through in the way we work with patients, and I think patients felt that. They realized that we were working hard and that even that perhaps some physicians were burning the candle at both ends at times just to keep up, but... I think what patients felt the most was that there was this authentic sense that the doctor was there for the right reasons, and the doctor was there to advocate for patients, for patients to get the care they needed.
0: Now that this uh, decision has come down, is, uh, is it uh, effective immediately, or is there a lag, uh, or w- what's that process like?
3: So this decision has been broken up into two phases. Phase one is over. Um, some of the, the details have yet to be worked out in the second phase. So that's what we're waiting for. That'll be rolled out over the next few months.
0: And uh, I, uh, I don't want to uh, <laughs> uh, annoy you or anything, <laughs> but like n- now that this contract's done, does the focus turn to the next contract, or, is, uh, or, or are we going to just wait uh, for this one to settle before we look ahead to the, to the future here?
3: I think it's important to let the dust settle and I think it's even more important to work on the healthcare transformation that's happening around us right now. That's becoming, that's fast becoming a reality as we speak. We know that this government is serious about changing the healthcare system. It's important for doctors to be there and to be part of that change.
0: I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you for having me on the show. I hope you have a great day.
0: That's Dr. Nadia Alam, president of the Ontario Medical Association. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock, in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock on London Live, in for uh, Mike Stubbs this week. Health Canada is warning parents not to give young children and adolescents cough and cold medicine containing opioids due to safety concerns and its lack of effectiveness. If you missed this warning last week, uh, pay attention to this. This is important. Uh, The advisory extends to adolescents and children under the age of 18. There are three prescription opioid drugs authorized for sale to treat cough symptoms in Canada. Uh, they include uh, codine, hydrocodone, and normethadone. Uh, after a safety review of the medications, Health Canada said the products are linked to other known harms, such as breathing problems, and there is a, quote, limited evidence to support the effectiveness of these products in children and adolescents. Health officials have become increasingly vigilant about the distribution and use of opioids amid a spike in addiction and deaths due to the powerful drug. Nearly 4,000 Canadians died from opioid overdoses in 2017, according to the federal government. The cough and cold medicine recommendation may be more of a precautionary warning, though. Health Canada said the Safety Review found little evidence that there was a link to opioid-containing cough and cold products with opioid use disorders in children and adolescents. However, the department said the early use of opioids still may be a factor in problematic substance abuse later in life. As well, younger children are at a greater risk of accidental poisoning. Health Canada is notifying manufacturers to update product safety information on cough and cold medicine containing opioids and to limit the recommended age of use to adults only. The announcement comes a year after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration released new rules that restricted the prescription of cold and cough medication containing opioids for children and adolescents under the age of 18. Dr. Michael Reeder is a member of the Drug Safety Committee with the Canadian Pediatric Society and is a professor of pediatric pharmacology at Western University. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today.
4: Thanks very much. Glad to talk to you.
0: So I, I thought this, uh, this warning from Health Canada was uh, quite interesting. What did you uh, make of it?
4: Well, I, I think it's, it's a prudent response by a regulator to a concern that's been around for a long time. So basically what Health Canada said was, we don't know that things work. We don't know that um, uh, they're safe, so we want to, uh, to, say, use caution under 18 until we know more, especially because we know already they've said that little kids don't use them at all.
0: Is it, um, is it a problem that th- this was made after they were on shelves, or is this sort of just the normal process of how things go?
4: That's the normal process how things go, actually, to be honest. Uh, you know, I think it, I think it's not anything. I don't think it's anything suspicious or anything else. I think it's just the way. I mean, regulators. I mean, most regulators are need to respond to things rather than be proactive, which is maybe a problem. But the way regulators work, uh, and they're responding to some concerns because one of the issues, of the regulator cases, which is a big issue, is all these products are old. So there's a lot of new rules for safety and efficacy. But if you had a product in the market for versus in the case of, of some cough and cold preparations, probably 40 years, in the case of some drugs, 80 years, there's not much capacity regulators have to change things as much as the concern comes up. And now a concern has come up and the regulator is doing what they're supposed to do.
0: How careful, and this kind of, I guess, underscores how careful we should be, but how careful should we be with cough and cold products that do contain some opiates?
4: Well, I think we I think need a lot of caution. I mean, there's some reasons to use them, but especially in kids, not so much. I mean, some of the reasons we use them in adults are for different kinds of coughs and colds. And it has the potential for abuse because we know that people do take them to get high in kids in high school. So I think given that fact, and it's a fact, and given the fact that we don't think they actually work all that well in terms of, of, of reducing risk, um, we can, I think we, I think we need to, uh, be careful about how we, how those products will get used.
0: When we're talking about things like uh, codeine, uh, hydrocodone, yeah, yeah uh, exactly, normethadone, um, I, I, I had to practice to make sure I was saying them right or yeah. close to right. Right, right. Uh, do we make yeah. it simple enough for parents to know, you know, what's okay and what isn't if they're buying something for, you know, like uh, teens or something? Like that? Even though I know there should be for adolescents they, there's warnings telling people to be careful about this. But just when parents are going to maybe get something, just right. to, to make sure they're getting the right thing.
4: Well, I think I think that's why the new warning basically says they may not be wrong all the time, but talk to a doctor first. And I agree with that. Because there, it, it's possible the product may be effective, it's possible the product may be useful, but I think that needs a little intermediary, in this case a physician or a pharmacist, to Yeah, that makes sense you know it doesn't.
0: This, as you mentioned earlier, builds on an, an earlier recommendation that for kids under 6 don't even use uh, cold and cough medicine. Why is it that count, over-the-counter cold and cough medicine isn't uh, really effective for, for kids who are really young?
4: Well, that's a really good question. The is the biology is different. You know, The reasons that they get cough and cold are different. Um, and some of the reason is, is that, especially for, for, for little kids, you're trying to suppress a natural protective response so the body has a lot of, of backup mechanisms that say, well, I don't want to suppress that. So, you know, it doesn't treat the problem, which is an infection. The body has, the body, we have cough in our nose for a reason. So I think part of it is we're trying to, you know, beat with a drug something that we have, you know, something that 100 million years of biology is driven, well, it might be little maybe 10 million years of biology is driven, it's made, and they're not likely to work. I mean, especially for the reason they're given, I mean... Some adults have chronic costs for other reasons that need treatment, but not so much in kids.
0: Do you think like, there's obviously been a lot of focus, uh, not just in this country, in North America, and and, uh, and lots of countries about opioids? Would this type of review of this have happened differently had there not been that focus? Or do you think this might have na- happened naturally anyway?
4: It might have happened naturally because of the concerns about opiates in kids that predate this. Because there's concerns about opiates in kids that go back go back. A long ways uh, before the opiate crisis, but the opiate crisis certainly has put it's put the it's put the tip of the spear on it. That's for sure.
0: Could we see you know similar reviews uh, being done? I, I don't know what opiates might also be in, but I think like, would, I, I guess it wouldn't be a surprise if we're going to see other reviews being done, just to uh, really review to make sure uh, some of the claims that are being made uh, hold up, and we're not putting people at risk here beyond just cold and cough medicine.
4: Absolutely, I mean that's through all the regulators, and actually. I, you know, there, there are a lot of us in pharmacology who've been active discussions with Health Canada is how can the regulator be more proactive. I think Health Canada is very interested in getting into being more proactive because I mean they take their mandate to guard Canadians' health very really seriously. I have a lot of respect for Health Canada. Those discussions are going on now as to how we can actually we can move from being waiting for a tragedy to happen to seeing we're going to prevent a tragedy.
0: Why haven't they been as proactive in the past? Do you think?
4: I think it's a it's a bit cultural and it's a bit with respect to regulations, because the regulations have changed. And to be fair to Health Canada, which I always try to be, um, they, regulate, they didn't have the regulatory authority until a couple of years ago to actually be proactive. But you know, Parliament changed the rules. The rules are, are with the new like Vanessa's law and other rules in place. We now have they have the ability now to actually go and say, I think this could be a problem. I mean it's the same in the US. They they have this rule called the pediatric Rule. Until I came into place a few years back, they really couldn't tell drug companies, I know they're gonna use the drug in kids, you have to study it in kids. I mean, it's, it's part of, part of it's legislation, and then it's also changing culture. Because, you know, you get used to doing one thing, you have to do things differently. But the big deal is, is, is getting regulatory tools where the agency has the authority to do it.
0: Well, sir, uh, certainly interesting, something parents should know. I uh, really appreciate your time today helping us uh, break us all down.
4: Well, I'd like to thank you very much for bringing this to people's attention because it's important that they hear this message and that, uh, you know, because, you know, we're all in the game together. We want the best for our kids. It's important that the you know, media brings attention forward. would like to thank you and your station for bringing this forward.
0: Indeed. Thank you very much. Have a good day.
4: Thanks.
0: That's Dr. Michael Reeder from Western University. It's, it's interesting this has come up, and uh, something I was not aware of about opiates in uh, some cough and cold medicine. Uh, so uh, if you uh, do have a, a kid who is sick, uh, be on the lookout for this. I would just ask... a a pharmacist, if you're unsure with some of this stuff, because for me, it's one thing you hear it on the radio, maybe uh, you read it online and it's top of mind, but then you need to go and get the cough medicine and and you you can't remember what it is. These these are not top of mind things for me. I'm guessing they're not top of mind things for you when you're talking about uh, hydrocodone, for example. So just, just ask the pharmacist to assist with some of that if you're unsure because it's better to be safe than sorry with some of this stuff. It is interesting, though, with all the, the focus we're seeing on opioids these days. We had uh, a city committee just uh, yesterday talking about uh, potentially having naloxone kits in city arenas and buildings where we have AEDs. Uh, I, in the spirit of it, probably a good idea, but I did agree with the committee saying uh, no for now just because A- it would be the public that would administer these kits if necessary. B, I don't think the public would be in the best position to be absolutely sure they are needed if there is a health situation that arises where they might be needed. And C, there haven't been any opioid overdoses in city facilities. So we're putting these in a place where it doesn't happen. People are not trained on how to use the kits. And C, we not may not properly diagnose them. So... Uh, I appreciate uh, the added uh, focus on this, but I think the, uh, the committee made the right decision yesterday. Uh, we need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We have just enough time to set up the second hour of the program, and we have got lots on the way. We'll be uh, doing an interview talking about uh, lake ice and a new study that is found in uh, a short period of time. We could be seeing lake ice disappearing from all freshwater lakes around the globe. And we've got a lot of freshwater lakes in Canada. I shouldn't say all freshwater lakes, but a lot of freshwater lakes, and that could be a big problem. We'll talk about a a new uh, support program that will be announced uh, next week at Western University to assist coworkers and employees who have coworkers who have been the victim of sexual violence we will talk about a uh, interesting new uh, study that came out from stats canada that shows the number of canadians who were in uh, a relationship but living apart from their partner and we'll talk to uh, the uh, the now retired Uh, Chief of Police in Wingham as the Wingham Police Service ends after 140 years. That and more coming up in the second hour of the program. This is Devin in for Mike Gun 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I don't think there is such a thing as too many stories on climate change. I think it's the most important issue of the day And the more we know, the better off we are. New research out of York University has found that by the late 21st century, 35,000 freshwater lakes around the world could see permanent ice loss from warming winters if the global climate warms beyond the two-degree target set by the Paris Agreement. Since Canada has 14% of the freshwater lakes on Earth, there's a stat for you, This is an interesting piece of information. This may not sound like a big deal, but think about it. This could disrupt feeding and spawning for fish. This could cut access to remote communities that depend on lake ice. This would mean no more ice hockey, no more shinny, maybe no more ice fishing. Simply just no more skating on the lake. Sapna Sharma is a biology professor at York University and is the lead author on this study. She joins us now. Thanks for your time today.
5: Uh, Thanks for your interest in our research.
0: I thought it was an interesting study. I mean, at first blush, it may not sound like a big deal if we have permanent ice loss on freshwater lakes, but it could have a big impact.
5: Uh, It would have a really big impact, uh, both ecologically but also culturally. So ecologically, lake ice, is very important to preserve water quantity and water quality. In terms of water quantity, lake ice sort of acts almost like a lid on the lake in the in the, in the winter to prevent evaporation and evaporative losses of water. In terms of water quality, lake ice is, is also a reset, uh, sort of like a reset button for lakes. And uh, when lakes... Um, don't melt or or don't freeze, or if uh, ice breakup is earlier in the season, uh, those tend to coincide with uh, warmer water temperatures, uh, more algal blooms, and the increased likelihood of toxic algal blooms. So, ecologically, lake ice is uh, is very important. Uh, culturally, lake ice is important for activities, uh, recreation, such as uh, snowmobiling, ice fishing, ice skating. Uh, it's important for winter ice roads, um, particularly to connect indigenous communities uh, to access resources in the winter and also um, their social networks. And uh, lake ice is also... Uh, a really good indicator of climate, and uh, and something that we can visually see uh, how climate is uh, changing, and and the corresponding loss of winter, um, which, uh, as you know, in Canada, winter is a is an important part of our of our uh, cultural identity.
0: You, you outlined uh, a lot of the the impacts. I mean, no ice also maybe helps these lakes warm up even faster, and we have. Uh, it almost speeds up the problem
5: it does uh, we uh, earlier we did a study looking at how water temperatures have increased around the world and we found that uh, Lake Superior was the second fastest warming lake in the world, and Lake Superior also in this uh, past uh, two decades is beginning not to freeze over in the winters and so the the idea is that uh, the either lack of ice cover or the earlier ice breakup is contributing to uh, some of the world's largest lakes uh, warming even even faster.
0: How did you uh, conduct the study? Was, is it something easy to track, or, or what's kind of involved with this?
5: Um, this is uh, So this lake ice study, one of the best things about working with lake ice is that we have records going back to, uh, to 1442, before the Industrial Revolution, and so there's this uh, database that we've been developing for over 1,200 lakes and rivers around the Northern Hemisphere, and uh, scientists have collected uh, ice ice records, but a lot of it is collected by citizens. So, for example, the longest ice record we have, going back to 1442, is collected by 15 generations of Shinto priests. <laughs> And so getting, uh, having access to, these, uh, to this information is crucial to understanding climate change uh, using direct human observation. So it's, it's a long-standing uh, process of, of putting together this, uh, these data, but they're an excellent way to understand how our world is changing.
0: We are joined on the line by Sapta Sharma, a biology professor at York University. Would every lake in Canada have permanent ice loss or not all? Canada's got a lot of uh, freshwater lakes.
5: Yeah, Canada has a lot of freshwater lakes. Uh, we have approximately 7 to 9 million lakes. We have so many lakes, we don't actually know how many we have <laughs> uh, exactly. And uh, no, we're not estimating that uh Canada will experience um, loss of ice cover in all of its lakes, um, particularly in southern regions, and it and it depends upon the degree of climate warming. So, so if we meet...
0: Sorry, go No, ahead. no, no I, you kind of got... We're getting what I was going to ask. What, the reasons I asked that was, like, what's the difference between a lake that freezes over and doesn't? Is it, is it climate or is there more to it than that? No,
5: nope, it's climate, and it's really temperature. So, as you know... Uh, water freezes when temperatures are below zero, and uh, and we're, uh, depending upon the degree of climate warming, there are some regions in Canada and around the world that may no longer experience uh, winter air temperatures below zero every year, and uh, those are the lakes that are susceptible to not freezing, so if we, if we think about the IPCC report and the 1.5 Celsius mark or the 2 Celsius mark, uh, then only lakes in southern uh, Canada are, are susceptible to not freezing every winter. But if we do not mitigate greenhouse gas emissions uh, and uh, warming of the planet continues, then we, uh, we end up in a situation where more lakes and um, tens of thousands of lakes across Canada could no longer freeze every winter.
0: Do you think we are prepared for a future without lake ice?
5: That's a good question. Uh, I don't think so, not yet. Um, the thing that surprised me most about this study is how fast these changes are are expected to occur. Um, and we're talking about within our generation. So, lakes. One of the most well-studied lakes in the world is Lake Madison, uh, Lake Mendota in Madison, Wisconsin, and it's frozen every year since 1850. And you think of Wisconsin, you think of cold winters. And we're predicting that by 2025, this lake is not going to be freezing every winter. People in Wisconsin are not ready for, for winters where, where their lake doesn't freeze since it's so important for ice fishing. They have a winter ice festival that happens every year, um, and, and it's a big part of, of the culture and not only uh, how healthy uh, the lake is. So uh, the, the, um, the result that concerned me the most from this work was that how rapid these,
6: uh, these changes may, uh, may be
0: coming. Well, this is a a different kind of study when we look at climate change, where uh, in some cases they're projections, and we don't know if those projections are right or not. Maybe sometimes uh, they're wrong, but in the sense it's happening even even faster than we thought. But sometimes it's hard to visualize uh, climate change. This is one of those cases where we can see climate change in action.
5: Exactly. That's That's the beauty of working with lake ice. You can see whether your lake is frozen or not. And you can also get an idea of, was it frozen in November, like it used to be, or is it now freezing in January? So something as, as extreme as, did the lake frozen or not, can give you an idea of climate change. But something more nuanced, like when did this lake freeze and when is it melting, also gives us an idea of how fast the climate is warming.
0: It's uh, quite interesting. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Sapna Sharma, biology professor at York University. I could tell you that the lakes are getting warmer. I shouldn't say lakes. Uh, my family has a uh, cottage up north in the Muskoka area, and every year we just take, you know, the, the temperature uh, of what the lake is out of curiosity, but also we're part of, uh, you know, a local group that's looking out for uh, the uh, the health of the lake. And so we take the temperature in different parts of the lake in different bays and all sorts of stuff. We go around. And over the past couple of years, the lake in our area has been getting warmer. We are seeing more lily pads now than when I was a kid and they grow in warmer water. So just anecdotally, I could tell you that the, uh, The lake that I have uh, spent my entire life uh, growing up around is getting warmer. That doesn't mean all lakes are getting warmer, but this study does suggest all lakes are uh, getting warmer, and that is not a good thing. We need to pause and come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. On Monday, Western University is going to launch a major training program on sexual violence disclosure. The Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children at Western University's Faculty of Education has co developed a free and accessible online training program that helps employees in post secondary institutions provide positive support to sexual violence survivors. The training is in response to the provincial government's mandate that all of Ontario's post secondary institutions develop standalone sexual violence policies. Bob McQuarrie is the community director of the center. She joins us now. Thanks for your time today.
6: Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Uh, With regards to this uh, this uh, program that's going to be launched on Monday, what's involved in putting something like this together?
6: Uh, This has been a three year endeavor. Uh, We've had an advisory committee that involves, um, I think, about 10 other post-secondary institutions, both colleges and universities. Um, We have worked with a professional filmmaker because a lot of our uh, training is scenario-based. We've met regularly with our advisory committee. We had a researcher who did a literature review, um, who did an environmental scan to see what post-secondary inst- institutions are already doing um, to address sexual violence. Um, and we talked to survivors uh, um, from campuses who have uh, experienced sexual violence to find out, you know, what they thought was missing and what they thought was, was needed. And then, of course, we had to work with a lot of um, technical people to build a website and to get a website so that it's... it's fully functional, user-friendly interface.
0: So uh, a real easy process is uh, what I'm taking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
6: yeah. <laughs> yeah, Piece of cake. <laughs> uh,
0: for, for this kind of a program, is it for like um, employer-to-employee or coworker worker based or, or both?
6: Um, it, it, the way we d- designed our training is for pretty much anybody who works uh, at a university. So uh, it could be faculty, administrative staff. They could be working in residence and housing facilities, financial services. They could be... um, uh, psychological counseling they could be academic counseling uh, they could be uh, working with international students or indigenous students they could be you know on health and wellness teams they could be managers they could be in physical plant. Our thinking is that um, people disclose that something's happened to them based on relationships and so um, that anybody we want in, in case anybody receives a disclosure, somebody tells them a coworker, a friend who's also a coworker, look, this happened to me. We want them to be prepared to give an empathetic, supportive response that's going to get them to the next step. We certainly don't expect and we don't want everybody to be, become a social worker to be, you know, become an expert in sexual violence. That's not the point. The point is is that if somebody starts to tell, and usually somebody won't tell the whole story, but they'll just tell a little, little bit, and the kind of reaction they get the first time they say something will determine whether or not they'll go on to tell the whole story, whether or not they'll go on to tell somebody else, whether they'll go on to seek out supports and resources for themselves. So it's really important that all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our official role and position is, really be able to respond supportively
0: I think something like this is just so important because if someone uh, trusted me with this uh, sort of uh, information I would want to be as supportive as I can but I also be worried that I would say or do the wrong thing
6: exactly and and I think many many of us harbor that fear and when and that shuts conversations down that keeps the silence in place, the only way we can begin to deal with these problems is to break that silence. We do not want survivors to be isolated. It is the worst position to be in. So we have to literally create the conditions, create the climate where we just talk about these things and we feel comfortable hearing about them. And so that's what this training does. It just prepares people at that most basic level. If somebody's going to disclose that they experience sexual violence, what do I say? What do I do? And it's not that anybody has to fix the whole uh, situation. It's not that anybody has to investigate it. Um, It's just really support in the moment, and here's a resource. I actually can help you seek out a support.
0: Could something like this assist with, um, like, say, if you if you have someone who's, um, you know, a family member or, or a close friend? Um, as being the victim of sexual violence, and that person is struggling to make headway of that, and they turn to someone in their office who's maybe a friend or they have a close relationship. Could some of this also apply in that type of a situation?
6: Absolutely, it applies because the the dynamics of that first response are the same; they're they're consistent. Um, what would change is where you send somebody. Um, to look for help and and support and, and further resources um, but even that information would be available um, on our website because there's community based sexual assault centers in most com- in most communities, and there's also um network of hospital-based treatment centers and so they're available for uh, staff and and faculty and students on campuses and they're available to um, everybody who lives in the community.
0: I know, I can only imagine, I don't know, I can only imagine how difficult it would be for someone to, to share something like that with someone else. That in itself is such a huge step Uh, for that person's uh, recovery to be able to uh, be open about it and not hold it into themselves because holding it into yourself, I can understand why it's difficult, but it's obviously better to share with people because those people can can help you. It's really, it is is very
6: difficult to um, tell somebody that this has happened to you, that you've experienced sexual violence, but just as you say, holding it in, it isolates, it, it It stops somebody from being able to start their healing. And so just being able to disclose is critically important. And I think the more um, we bring this out into the open through initiatives like this, where we say, this is something we talk about. This is not something we hide. This is not something that and anybody's experienced it needs to be ashamed of. We need to talk about it. I think slowly we're making inroads and we're encouraging people to come forward and we're telling them it's okay. We want you to come forward. I mean, I think until very recently, really until uh, on a broad scale until the Me Too movement, we were actually telling survivors, mm, "We don't really want to hear what you have to say." You know, we not you probably won't be believed, Uh, you're taking a big risk to say anything, it's going to be a a big problem for you to have to prove everything and prove your own credibility if you say anything. We're shifting that and we're saying, no, please come, please tell us, Um, and we, we will guide you to the resources that can begin to help you with your healing.
0: That kind of leads to what the next question I had for you is, is it easier for uh, workplaces and, and, you know, uh, employees who might be in this position to help someone uh, to to adopt some of this stuff, just given the conversation we're having today, as opposed to even five years ago, people a bit more uh, open minded uh, to these types of situations and just how difficult that struggle can be?
6: We're definitely in a moment in time where it's easier to do this kind of work, where it's easier to create this kind of initiative and have people pay attention to it. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that we've seen a really significant change in our thinking as a result of the many, many, many brave women and some men as well that have come forward to disclose what's happened to them. Um, and that, that makes it possible for others to come forward behind. It makes it possible for uh, people like my center to um, create resources to assist in that process. And it makes governments pay attention and it makes governments say, oh, maybe it's worth putting some resources into actually supporting survivors.
0: Finally, I I know this is designed for employees in in post-secondary institutions, but I think this type of program would be useful in all workplaces.
6: it would be useful in all workplaces, and it's really important that we we spend as much time and often more time at work than we do with our families even. Um, So we have to start to see work as a place that's impacted by things like interpersonal violence, and we have to figure out um, how to give that supportive response. And again, not to make the workplace into a a counselling office, But to make the workplace um, uh, a way, you know, a a way to get to where we need to get to
0: um, those supportive resources. Barb, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's Barb McQuarrie, Community Director of the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children at Western University's Faculty of Education. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in on London Live. Stats Canada released some interesting information yesterday. According to new data, nearly 1.5 million Canadians between the ages of 25 and 64 consider themselves to be in a couple with a partner who lives somewhere else. The data from Stats Canada shows the number of Canadians, quote, living apart together, or LAT for short, has been steadily increasing over the past decade plus, going from 6% of uh, the interrelationship population in 2006, to 9% in 2017. Asked why they were not living with their partner, 34% of respondents uh, said it was an intentional choice. Another 15% said they and their partner had never considered living together. Dr. Marcia Sirota is a board-certified psychiatrist and founder of the Ruthless Compassion Institute. She joins us on the line now. Thanks for your time today.
7: Oh, it's really great to be here.
0: Well, I was really intrigued by this uh, this this information from Stats Canada about uh, couples uh, living together but apart, or living apart together, as I guess is how they, they call it. Uh, just for my reference, is being in a long distance relationship better, uh, or sorry, not better, different from this, or are they kind of different names for the same uh, same entity?
7: think probably being in a long-distance relationship is one aspect of people who live apart together in their relationships. So there are lots of different reasons why people have this kind of arrangement. So being long-distance would be one of them, but but plenty of people who live apart together, um, or live together apart, whatever you want to call it, they don't actually uh, live far away from each other. Okay. In fact, they say that four out of five people who live in a Living apart together relationship live in the same province, and sixty four percent live within twenty kilometers of each other.
0: This, as I said, is something interesting. It's something I've never really considered before. But if we have like one point five million Canadians doing this, it certainly seems to be uh, something that's uh, that's growing in in popularity.
7: Yes, in fact, it's gone up from six percent in twenty oh six to nine percent in twenty seventeen, and I think that I have a theory. I think that when people have permission in society to do things that they want to do, they start doing them. And before, maybe there was less tolerance or acceptance of this kind of lifestyle choice, so fewer people did it. But now that there's more space for people to live the way they really want to, the the authentic way, then they're taking this option.
0: I would have thought that part of uh, maybe uh, one of the reasons people may not want to do this is you're not with your your partner, you don't know what they're up to all the time, and maybe there's some uh, trust issues, but this seems to almost there's more trust if in the relationship if this is the route uh, some people want to go.
7: You know, the rate of um, infidelity in people who live together is quite high. It's actually shockingly high, and obviously the rate of divorce is almost 50%. So I think that if people trust each other, Then they can make whatever arrangements they feel comfortable with. But I don't think that living together or living apart really makes a difference in terms of whether people are going to be faithful or not.
0: Uh, We are. You kind of alluded to this before a little bit. We are in 2019. You know, many different lifestyles have more acceptance these days. Mm -hmm. This, in some ways, is not really all that radical. Not that I mean, radical is always in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But. Um, I, I guess maybe to what you were saying earlier, people may have more freedom to say, "Well, this is you know how, how I want to be in my relationship. This is how I want to live." And for the large part, you know, for, for me, I mean, how people you know live in their relationship has no bearing on me. So whatever uh, whatever works for you is fine by me.
7: Yeah, I think that um, a lot of times people want to do something, but maybe their family pressures them, or their community pressures them, or the people around them you know, give them a, you know. A, funny look if they're making a choice that the other people don't understand or agree with. But I think today, you know, there is a lot more acceptance for people doing the things that make them happy and and being able to just be their authentic self, as I said. So if if there is that support, then I think that's why we're seeing this quite significant 3% rise in the last 11 years. That's a big rise over time, you know, statistically.
0: Uh, One of the things that's interesting about it the, just the, the rise in the, uh, a relatively short period of time is I haven't seen too much uh, discussion of this in like the general media. And so uh, for me, I wouldn't have the idea of doing this, but as, as it catches on, there's, this is another option for uh, relationships, uh, for couples if they want for their relationship. So it, to me, it's kind of interesting because it almost seems like it's kind of organic where it's always kind of been bubbling there. And now maybe pe- people feel more agency to do this.
7: And, and we may actually know people in our, in our own families or communities who are doing it. You know, I have a friend whose mother, she's in her early 60s and she has a boyfriend and they both have their own homes and they've been in a very long-term relationship and uh, they've been very happy to live apart. So, you know, I, we, we might actually all know somebody who's, who's, you know, in this arrangement, but maybe they don't talk about it that much. But I think it's more common than we think. And, um, you know, this is just a choice they've made. And people make the choice for different reasons. Sometimes they make the choice because, you know, one's at work in another place. You know, I knew another couple. They were um, living apart for almost the whole, the entirety of their marriage because they both were university professors and one was in Montreal and one was in New York City (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they couldn't find jobs in the same city. So there are those reasons. But, but, you know, they say that about half of the people who, who do this Uh, living apart together choose to do it it's not because of their circumstances but it's a choice that they've made because it's how they want to live
0: does it lend itself to a certain age group or could this be because like this would be the 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 status off from stats canada was between 25 and 64 so that's obviously a couple different Mm -hmm. generations there but is there one you know is it more popular with boomers or millennials or not or not really
7: You know, interestingly, I would have thought it would be more popular with the older couples because, you know, like this mother of a friend of mine who, you know, they want to have their own households, they've already raised their families, they've they've been married, this is maybe a new relationship, and, you know, they feel like, why bother? But actually, that's the smallest group. The 55 to 64-year-olds are only 5% of the group. And that middle range of 35 to 54 are only 7%. And the largest group, interestingly, is the 25 to 34-year-olds. And they're, that's 20% of the people who have chosen to live apart together. So it's, it's much more popular in the young age groups.
0: Based on the growth we've seen since 2006, probably safe to say this is going to become uh, more of a popular option for couples?
7: Um, You know, it's hard to tell, but very well could be. And, uh, you know, life life is getting very complicated. It's harder to get jobs for the younger demographic. It's harder to settle down. Income is difficult. So, you know, they may have to go further afield to uh, set themselves up in a career, and that might mean leaving their partner behind in another place but carrying on the relationship.
0: It's quite interesting. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
7: Oh, it's really been a pleasure.
0: That's Dr. Marcia Sirota, a board certified psychiatrist and founder of the Ruthless Compassion Institute. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. This is Devin Peacock in for uh, Mike Stubbs. I want to turn our direction over to Wingham for the next little while, because uh, today Uh, A bit of a sad day, I would say, in Wingham. Uh, In Wingham, they are losing their police service. Now, uh, if you have not followed the story, what is happening is the Wingham Police Service, which has uh, protected the community since 1879, uh, will cease to exist, or or it has already at this point ceased to exist. It ended at noon, and uh, the OPP will be taking over coverage of policing for that area. Uh, Last year, the uh, town council made the decision to end the Wingham Police Service because of money. Over uh, the next 10 years, they figure to save about $8.2 million uh, by switching over to the OPP. And it's really a decision that's born out of uh, financial necessity. Uh, Wingham is a town of about uh, 3,000 people. And we are seeing a number of communities making this decision, deciding to uh, switch over to the OPP just because they cannot afford their own police service. In Wingham, as I said before, they've been around for 140 years. So it's an end of an era. It's a, it's a sad time because I think there is an important uh, relationship between a community and their police service, especially in some of those smaller communities such as Wingham, where you have a, a population of about 3,000 people. This is to say nothing wrong about the OPP. I'm not uh, trying to slight the OPP in any way, shape or form, but it's a change and it's a end of an era and it's, it's too bad. They can't afford their own police service, but it is 2019. And as we've talked about many times in the past, policing costs in this province are going up and up and tough decisions are having to be made. And a tough decision was made last year in this regard. So, um, The change has already happened. It happened at noon. Today was the last day for the Wingham Police Service. As of right now, uh, the OPP is in charge of policing in that region. Uh, We are now joined by Tim Poole, uh, the uh, former police chief of the Wingham Police Service. I talked to him earlier today. Here is that conversation. Today is uh, end of an era, 140 years uh, with the switch over from Wingham uh, Police Service to uh opp uh what are your feelings on a day like today
8: well oh, it, it's uh like you said it's the end of an era uh the uh, bylaw number five from uh, uh 1879 is what created the wing police service and uh last year they decided to go switch to opp policing uh, in a cost-saving uh, effort it's not uh, because because the job that was being done by the Wingham police it's just uh as uh, with everything in today's world, fiscal responsibility, and they're saving money to go to the OPP over time.
0: When you took the job as uh, chief, uh, I imagine you probably didn't think you were going to be the last uh, police chief in the 140-year history.
8: No, I did not. Uh, uh, As a matter of fact, last year we didn't think that uh, the plan was uh, to continue on but uh, midway through the year, they changed their mind. The council changed their mind and decided that it was time to go to the OPP. So I never thought I'd be the last one. I didn't want to be the last one, but uh, it, it's kind of a, a thrilling, uh, exciting time as well.
0: What has the reaction in the community been? I, I know the the, all, the officers from Wingham Police, you're, you were retiring, but the officers are all switching over to the OPP, right?
8: Yes, uh, they're, they've all been hired by the OPP. They start their training with them on Monday, and they're going to be coming back to this area to be policing uh, as part of the unified, uh, or sorry, integrated uh, Huron County detachment.
0: So there, there will still be that uh, you know tie-in with the community, a little bit different than it is now, maybe. But uh, I guess what's what's the reaction, the community being like with uh, with this change happening?
8: Uh, a lot of the people seem to be a little apprehensive, uh, but uh yeah they they do see the, the benefits uh, and and the uh disadvantages uh, of it happening but uh, the biggest thing i uh, can say is the funding uh, they're, they're going to save a substantial amount of money over 10 years uh and you're going to have the same officers policing the area so it, it shouldn't make much of a difference to them
0: I understand the decisions have been made. I don't want to cause any trouble, but would you have preferred uh, it stay with the Wingham Police rather than the switch over to OPP? Uh,
8: I think it's a sign of the times. Uh, It's becoming more and more difficult to keep up to the uh, standards which are evolving uh, on uh, a daily basis. Uh, So uh, I think it was inevitable. Uh, Personally, I I enjoy uh, having your own police service but a community of uh, just under 3000 people it, it's not uh, a, recent, a responsible way to do it
0: i don't mean this as as a slight to the OPP but there is i think something a little bit different when you have you know a police service you know that's responsible for its own municipality
8: uh it's a little bit different because you live in the municipality you uh participate in uh, lots of things volunteering uh Like uh, we have officers that are hockey coaches, but again, I'm sure that's going to continue with uh, the officers from uh, this area that are going to be with the OPP.
0: This obviously was a a decision made by the council, but do you think there could this? What's this type of situation? It could be present in other communities. These types of difficult decisions uh, could be uh, coming uh, the way in in other parts.
8: Oh, for sure. Uh, It's uh, like policing. is looked at almost every year uh, at budget time to to determine uh, which way they're going to go. Uh, and just recently, uh, Midland uh, and Sterling Rodden and Espinola have all gone to the O.P.P. and uh, West Nipissing is uh, looking at doing it in January or sorry June.
0: What sort of uh, fond memories do you have from your uh, policing career with uh, with Ringham? Oh,
8: it's, uh it's the camaraderie with the officers here. Uh it's been great. Uh the just the uh, I'm trying to think here. Uh a lot of good times. Uh, that's uh, a lot of hard times as well. A lot of work and uh, dealing with uh, some stre- very stressful issues. But uh it's been good overall.
0: What, uh, so at, at noon is when the, the changeover officially happens, right? That's correct. So at, at noon, essentially it's, it's, is there a, is there an official changeover or is it just when the clock strikes 12, if people need, uh, police assistance, they just call the OPP at that time?
8: Uh, that's, that's it. Yeah. There's no ceremony or anything official like, like that. Uh, there's been media releases put out, uh. Uh, we'll have a, a sign on our door saying who to contact uh, like the with the updated phone numbers. Our administration line, the one that you called to get a hold of me here, will have a, a message on it saying who to contact. And our dispatchers know to uh, downstream any calls that come in to the OPP dispatcher.
0: And, and do you have any plans uh, for retirement now?
8: Uh, nothing right away. Uh, we're looking at... Uh, Uh, sitting back and assessing how well the pension holds out and uh, deciding whether or not I have to look for a a part-time job or a casual job. But mostly I'll be looking at volunteering and I work with the Air Cadets, uh, which uh, I think is a fabulous organization. I'll be able to devote a lot more time to that.
0: That is uh, Tim Poole, the now former and retired uh, Chief of Police for Wingham. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Just a reminder that uh, if you want to hear Mike Stubbs, you can. He will call the London Knights game uh, tonight. The Knights are in Peterborough to play the Peets you can hear the game on 980 CFPL as you can hear every game on 980 CFPL. Pre-game is at 6.30. Puck drop is at 7.05. London Knights are home to Hamilton on Friday. They also have an afternoon game on Sunday. Those games of course also on 980 CFPL. But you can hear Mike tonight. 6.30 is the pre-game. Puck drop, 7.05. London Knights versus the Peterborough Peets. This is their first game since they lost 9-4 to Mississauga on Family Day. My thanks to Phil Squire, Lynn Logan, Dr. Nadia Alam, Dr. Michael Reeder, Sapna Sharma, Barb McQuarrie, Dr. Marcia Sirota, and Tim Poole for coming on the show today. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from the U.S. This is an anchor using some poor wording for a story, led to some giggling on the news desk. Have a great day. I'll be back with you in 22 hours. Over
3: 880,000 boxes of Girl Scouts will be, it's Girl Scout cookies, <laughs> <laughs> will be distributed this weekend.
2: clarify? That? <laughs> we don't have boxes
4: of Girl Scouts. Boxes of Girl Scout cookies will be delivered this weekend. <laughs>